0: From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just gonna test your guys' mics. With Chris Kass. If you've been paying any attention to the Olympics this year, you probably know that just before it started, a lot of Russian athletes were banned for using performance-enhancing drugs, or PEDs. Then, just a few weeks later, some of the athletes were unbanned if they could prove that they were clean. The report from the World Anti-Doping Agency outlined a system of state-sponsored doping dating all the way back to 2011, so even the 270 athletes that were cleared to compete didn't seem completely clean. In fact, since the report, I've found myself assuming the worst about anyone who wins anything, even Outside's editor-in-chief, Chris Kies. First of all, to orient myself, what was your relay this weekend?
1: Oh, it was the uh, it was a Ragnar relay in Angel Fire, New Mexico. Pretty fun. We actually it was the first one there last year, and our team won it like completely unexpectedly. Like we went there just to have fun, and about three quarters through the race, somebody on the team was like, "I think we're in the lead," and all of us were like, "No
0: way!" And um, and what did your PED regiment look like leading up to this?
1: Um, a lot of Rice Krispie treats <laughs> and. <laughs> Um, no, there's uh, not, not a lot of PEDs. I wish there were some PEDs in my, in my repertoire, especially now that I'm 42. But um, yeah, I'm afraid, I'm afraid I, I was racing pretty clean.
0: Sorry, Chris, but this is what everyone says when they win a race. It's just a matter of eating this or drinking that and training hard. No one believes you, man. And according to author Mark Johnson, they shouldn't. Johnson writes mostly about pro cycling. And his new book, Spitting in the Soup, outlines a history of doping that goes back to the very origin of the Olympic Games. But back then, he says, everyone knew about it.
1: You know, I think what was fascinating to me about the book and why I initially wanted to read it was the opening anecdote about the marathon at the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, um, and that there was doping there involving strychnine. But the fact that this was widely reported, and nobody at the time saw that as a bad thing. Um, In fact, most competitors and the general audience and fans saw doping as um, just a sign of commitment to craft.
0: No matter how you feel about doping, Johnson's book makes it pretty clear that it doesn't really matter how you feel about doping. It's been around forever, and it's probably not going anywhere. If we're being honest with ourselves, the interesting question going forward isn't whether athletes will go back to not using drugs, but whether sports fans will ever go back to not caring. And would that be a good thing? Chris takes it from here, in conversation with Mark Johnson.
1: One of the things I found really interesting is just starting with the origin of the Olympics themselves, which, as you point out, were really about... Um, a class division, more than anything else, the the, the the modern Olympics and the idea of amateurism was really an attempt to distinguish, you know, working class professional athletes from this ideal of the er, the aristocratic um, amateur. Yeah, the, the Olympics were the modern Olympics were first proposed in in eighteen ninety four by a, a French aristocrat Baron Pierre de Coubertin, and really he really saw the Olympics because he was alarmed at the cultural and economic transformations and revolutions that were taking place because of the Industrial Revolution. So economic power was being removed from feudal hands and put it into mercantile hands and, and manufacturing hands. And also the workers were starting to organize and starting to question this notion that power was handed down through God and inherited, and saying no, power comes from us, the people, and so he, as an aristocrat, was was very threatened by that. So he saw the Olympic Games as a theater for gentlemen amateurs, and that is someone who doesn't need to work, and who would only do sport sort of as a way of um, bettering their moral good. He, there was a real affinity. He, he Kuberdine saw the uh, the Olympics almost as a religious event, uh, a sort of modern chivalric enterprise that was the preserve of amateurs. And professionals were not welcome in the Olympics because professionals were proletarians. They were workers. So a cyclist, a runner, from day one, those sports were were born of the Industrial Revolution. Once you had enough people piling into cities like Manchester, Bilbao, uh, Milano, London, New York, all of a sudden, there was enough people who had a little spare money and a day off on Sunday that then uh, event organizers could charge money for, for someone to watch a soccer game or watch a six-day bicycle race at Madison Square Garden. So from day one, cycling and marathon, those were working-class sports. And in fact, in, in 1908, after the Olympics, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, recommended that cycling... And running not be in any future Olympics because they were the spirit of those sports clashed with the spirits of the Olympics, which was about amateurism. So, your book, Spitting in the Soup, uh, chronicles the history of doping as well as the evolution of the modern Olympic Games. And I think the big takeaway for me reading that is that. The two have, have always been intertwined, um, and you make that case right off the bat uh, discussing the, the the race involving Charles Hicks, an American marathoner at the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis. What was he taking, and, and what was the reaction? He was uh, taking strychnine and brandy and very little water. At the time, the cutting-edge sports medicine at the time said you should not use water, and that's something that really carried on through the '60s and even '70s. High school kids and playing football were discouraged from drinking water, and that was mainly because you couldn't find safe water. So, coaches said just drink beer, or to a lesser extent, brandy. But after the the Olympic games, he won the marathon, and his uh, doctor wrote that really it was uh, a display of. The power of of drugs to keep an athlete moving forward, and, and it was celebrated. It certainly was not stigmatized or seen as a mark of moral failing. It was it was an expression of how Americans and Hicks was a was a British American could turn to modern technology and push the boundaries of human performance, and that was really that attitude towards doping in sports carried on through the nineteen sixties. It was either indifference or praise of, of the embrace of technology. And really, that's the essence that I explore throughout the book. The essence of elite and professional sports isn't some state of fair play or sport for sports sake. It's pushing the boundaries of human performance, often by embracing technologies. And a lot of times those are pharmaceutical technologies. So the sense of shame and corruption that we associate with doping is a relatively modern phenomenon. Yeah, it seems to be that today we we believe that we're striving to, to reclaim a sort of lost Eden of uh, fair play in sports. But as you put it, that even the attitudes back then and for many, many years were actually embracing um, uh, doping because it showed the commitment on the part of, of, of an athlete. Yeah, and, and it wasn't until the 1960s that we started to burden doping with this moral cargo that it has today and that happened for a couple reasons one was um, in the early 60s late 50s and early 60s there was a massive disaster with thalidomide which was a drug that was administered in europe to pregnant women to help them deal with um, morning sickness but it turns out that it was causing um, birth defects and so that's sort of Maybe changed our cultural attitudes towards drugs, which up till that point we had seen drugs as something that you know stopped polio, which was an incredible disaster. And but then we said, well, drugs can also cause birth defects as well as, well as in them. And then also in the early 60s, uh, there started to be more awareness of the addictive potential of amphetamines and amphetamines were really the go-to drug for endurance sports like cycling and running. Then in 62, 63, 64 there were a few medical conferences that started to look at the dangers of drugs in sport and then in the late 60s as society started to have more anxieties about uh, recreational use of drugs and countercultural drug use then we started to say the medical community and the sporting community said well If this drug use in society at large isn't good for our morals, then maybe it's not in sport as well. So there was definitely a uh, run over of the souring of attitudes towards recreational drugs also soured our attitudes towards doping in in sports. You know, in 1938, you write that the, the IOC had actually added a line to its charter that essentially banned doping. But as you write, it was hardly enforced. The big shift seemed to be triggered by this death following the cycling team time trial in the 1960 Olympics in Rome. What happened there? Uh, so the preface of that is is so in 19 in the late 30s, there was the first evidence of notes in the IOC meetings meeting minutes that doping is something you should be concerned with. World War II happened, and so it wasn't until 1947 that actual regulation against doping entered IOC regulations, but the thing that's important is that rule was a subset of the things you need to do to maintain your amateur status. It wasn't necessarily because doping was inherently illegal or immoral or bad for you. It was because doping was essentially professional, and you should not dope. Because pro's dope, and you got to maintain your amateur status. So in 1960, a guy named Nude Edemark Jensen died during the team time trial at the Rome Olympic Games. It was a very hot day. Uh, He suffered heat stroke, fell off his bike, hit his head, and then was taken into a tent that was overheated. It was probably 120, maybe 130 degrees. wasn't air-conditioned. He laid there for two hours and then died of heat stroke. Although his autopsy uh, pointed to heat stroke as a cause of death, a rumor took flight that amphetamines were the cause of death. And so that quickly t- took root that drugs killed New and Mark Jensen, when in fact, what the evidence suggests is that it was bad emergency care and bad management of heat, but because drugs had a more salacious, interesting, newsworthy flair to it. That's what took root, and it solidified as drugs now have killed someone, even though that really wasn't the case. And that sort of triggered these, this follow-up of medical conferences about drugs in sport because the IOC said, oh, somebody has been killed by drugs. Maybe we should take a look at some of the medical consequences of, you, of this long sporting tradition of using drugs. Yeah, and you argue that um, this is a time when doping, not only because of the the deaths, but also the criminalizing of of doping itself, suddenly it it was a it was a moral issue, and you're you're critical of this shift and how it's um, how it's portrayed in the media today. Tell us why you think that, that that shift to it becoming a moral issue is, has has caused so many problems. Well, I think what you start to see is is definitely in the 60s is doctors start to this assume the rule the role of of moral arbiters, almost priests, saying, not not necessarily saying you shouldn't do this because this is injurious to your health, which there was very little evidence that it was. Um, And if you look at the number of people who have died from amphetamines in cycling, uh, it's one that we know of, Tom Simpson, in 1967, Tour de France. Meanwhile, between 1931 and around 2010, over a 1,000 people have died playing American football through head injuries, heat stroke, and sudden cardiac death. So American football is a mass killer, but we haven't created this great hysterical response to it uh, even though doping did, even though there's evidence that, well, one guy died from from amphetamine. So sort of the over-response is a reflection of how this, it became a sign of moral and personal failing. And that's where we come today with, with the World Anti-Doping Agency is built around preserving the spirit of sport, which is a, a relatively abstract sense that we should be really playing sport for the same reign, reasons Coubertin said we should be in 1894 just because sport is character building or sport is essentially character building, which is really a false construct because the spirit of elite sport is to win and to use technology to win. Uh, Character building, uh, building strength and commitment, those are socializing effects of sport, but they aren't necessarily the essence of elite sport particularly elite sport. They might be one of the essences of Little League, but they're not the essence of professional sports and, and elite Olympic sport, which is to win. Yeah, And this idea of, of the inherent dangers of doping has is, is really been widespread and prevalent to this day. And it's sort of every time a new uh, PED arises on the scene, there seems to be... Um, a lot of media hype about the the deadly dangers of it. You make the case, especially with EPO, when that arrived in the cycling peloton in the the 1990s, that um, really it was a pervasive idea that EPO was killing riders, whereas there's very little evidence, it sounds like, that that was ever the case. No, there is very little evidence. Um, And I think the way to illustrate how our response to drugs in sport is different and perhaps more hysterical than drugs in everyday culture is to look at how if you were to administer EPO, which is perfectly safe under doctor supervision, to a 27-year-old professional athlete at the peak of their performance, your response is, oh my gosh, that's so risky. You're going to kill them. They might die. But then you take someone who is suffering from cancer clinging to the last threads of life, and you administer APO to them, and you say, oh my gosh, this is a life-saving drug. It's, it's going to save their lives. It's, it's completely counterintuitive, but it just illustrates how sort of we associate a deadliness to drugs that isn't necessarily matched by uh, the clinical evidence. And in the case of EPO, there was a lot of media uh, coverage in the late 80s, early 90s, when EPO first came out in Europe in the late 80s, 88, 89 in the United States, that it was causing a rash of deaths, particularly amongst Belgian Belgian cyclists. But there is a a researcher in Spain who looked into this, and he found that basically what was happening is that rumors, the rumor took foot that EPO was killing cyclists, but there was no clinical data to suggest it, and it simply ossified through repetition. And what I found most remarkably is then in medical journals, peer-reviewed medical journals are now citing the rumors that had been ossified in the popular press as evidence of the deadly effects of EPO in sport. When when you trace it down through the footnotes, there is no evidence. Uh, And I, I think another good illustration of how our response to the deadliness of doping in sport is disconnected from its actual risks is looking at amphetamine abuse. We say, okay, if cyclists are using amphetamines, it, it could be deadly, it could have terrible effects. But today, in the United States of America, six and a half percent of American children aged four to 17 are on, on uh, amphetamines, ADHD drugs. Adderall is an amphetamine. But we have not seen the catastrophic effects uh, that are supposed to be happening on athletes how we celebrate drugs in everyday society, particularly performance-enhancing drugs like Adderall, Viagra, uh, even Botox, which could be used to sort of perform your, uh, enhance your performance in the game of life and, and marriage and work, and how we can celebrate it there, in fact, advertise it on television, and yet demonize it for this subset of athletes. And to me, that, that was a fascinating just juxtaposition. Yeah, I th- I agree. And I think related to that, I think, is uh, Americans' own perception of our own athletes and, and Olympic prowess. You know, I think through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the Olympics were really a symbol of the Cold War and an arms race. And as most Americans know, are very familiar with some of the, um, the widespread doping among Eastern Bloc countries, especially East Germany and its Just rigorous, rigorous doping plan with its athletes, Um, and regardless of whether American athletes were were doping or not during that time, there's there's no argument to be made that that they were um, doping on sort of the same level of sophistication that some of their competitors were. But what a lot of Americans don't probably aren't familiar with is what went on in the 1984 Olympics in the U.S. Um, And there's a couple of just remarkable. Shifts that took place there, but in 1978, as you chronicle, Americans really changed their approach to training their athletes and organizing um, the various sporting bodies, um, in direct result of the fact that in 1976 and 1972 Olympics, we our athletes were just crushed by uh, Russia and in East Germany. So, what took place in 78 with the um, the the act, that the Amateur Sports Act of 1978, that that changed things. So it really started immediately at the close of World War II. In 1945, the Soviet Union founded 80 state-sponsored sports programs where they were going to cultivate their athletes for the Olympics. And by the 60s, it was starting to yield results. Uh, In the mid-60s, East Germany... Created their own top-down state-run sports medicine program, and the co- the re- reason for that program was twofold. One, because they were um, um, occupied by the Soviet Union, winning and expressing their power prowess and power on the Olympic playing field was a way to express their superiority to their to their occupiers, the hated Russians. But it was also a way to express the superiority of of the communist system against the hated uh, capitalists, so it was really twofold there. So in East Germany, they had thousands of doctors, uh, applied scientists, and researchers looking at how can we create an environment where the athlete will be nurtured from the age of nine, in some cases, into a perfect performing machine? And part of that system, involved the administration of two million doses of of anabolic steroids every year to athletes, uh, particularly women, uh, because the East Germans saw huge opportunity because the United States was systematically discriminating against their women. And I write about uh, the first woman that ran the uh, Boston Marathon. When she asked her coach, she was 19, uh, Catherine Switzer, when she asked her track coach, said, I want to run Boston, he said, no dame can run Boston. And so women were really excluded until uh, Title IX from collegiate sports, which was our our Olympic de facto Olympic training program. So these Germans said by applying by giving steroids to women, uh, we can really clobber the capitalists, and it worked. (laughs) So by seventy six, Gerald Ford, who uh, like his predecessor Nixon, was a really strong anti communist. Uh, believed in the domino theory that we need to stop communism before it reaches the American borders, uh, funded a research project into how all other Olympic countries organize their their sports systems and these researchers came back and said, well, the Americans are chaos, we have nobody in charge, and so the Amateur Sports Act of 1978 put all the leadership in the hands of the U.S. Olympic Committee but because Ford, as a Republican, was, was inherently leery of heavy, bureaucratic, taxpayer-funded bureaucracies, the Amateur Sports Act said that taxpayers aren't going to pay for this new Olympic program. Uh, corporate America is going to pay for it. So the, the act allowed the U.S. Olympic Committee to license the Olympic symbols to corporations who would then underwrite the Olympics. So that creates an immediate tension with these anti-doping missionaries who were simultaneously growing their power throughout the 60s and 1970s because if you're underwriting the Olympics as a multinational corporation, the last thing you want to be involved with is a doping scandal. And on the other hand, um, this Amateur Sports Act was expressly to try and stop these communist humiliations on the Olympic playing field. So then you have very strong nationalistic forces aren't necessarily saying dope to win, but they're saying don't be embarrassed by Mm -hmm. the East Germans and the Russians anymore, knowing full well that they're doping. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to 84 Olympics. In 1983 at the Pan American Games in Caracas, Venezuela, there were some new HP anti-doping machines that were able to identify uh, steroids in athletes which they had been administered much earlier. And so then 15 athletes tested positive, and then 12 American athletes left Caracas immediately, didn't even put their feet on the field. Did they, get, uh, did they provide any um, rationale for that uh, in the press? Uh, not really, uh, it was, they really didn't. Um, so that was in 1983, Then in 1984, as they were approaching the the Olympic Games in Los Angeles, um, the U.S. Olympic Committee wanted to avoid this similar embarrassment because they knew that Americans were using the same medical technologies, uh, pharmaceuticals, as the Soviets and the East Germans. So what they did is they used the anti-doping lab at UCLA to screen the American athletes before the Games. Of the 86 athletes who tested positive, Uh, 84 went on to compete at the Olympic Games. So how far in advance of the Games were these athletes tested? uh, It was quite close to the Games, uh, I want to say a month before, a few weeks before. But that would ostensibly give all 86 of these athletes who had been tested positive um, an opportunity to to get them out of their system for the Games. Okay. Yep. So they could make sure that they stop taking the drugs before the games and were clean for the games that way when they won they would not test positive it didn't entirely work because uh, in the final week of the games which when when the track and field events were happening there were a whole lot of positives coming across the testing desk at the lab at UCLA and in fact uh 20 medal winners tested positive and when the um they tried. The IOC went to find the list of names that connected the names with the, the urine sample numbers. The list had mysteriously disappeared, and so all twenty of those athletes kept their medals, and the scandal was avoided. <laughs> yeah, and I think as you as you and others have argued, um, these this list that mysteriously disappeared was largely to do with avoiding. Um, you know, unnecessarily soiling the the corporate backers who, uh, of the Olympics and trying to avoid um, scandal. And I think it it speaks to this tension that continues today, which is that these governing bodies, uh, especially due to you know the media's general outrage at the idea of doping, um, has to show that they're doing something. But there's also this simultaneous like prayer that, um, both you know during the Olympics or you know during the Tour de France or, or any other major events that, okay, let's police this, but let's let's not have too many positives and, and avoid scandal. Right, and and that's ex- exactly the case. And I think the 1984 games was was a really great example because it's easy for us to say it said oh the. No, the LA organizing committee and the IOC—they're such hypocrites. They say they're anti-drugs, but then they make all these these positive disappear. On the other hand, you put yourself in the in the shoes of the LA Olympic Committee, who have working under the limits of a law that says you cannot spend any taxpayer money to make these games successful. And meanwhile, in 1983, in March of '83, Ronald Reagan had met with the uh, US Olympic Committee uh, executives and said, don't shortchange us. Sent a very clear message. Don't embarrass at these these games. We're tired of these communist humiliations. Now, to be very clear, Reagan wasn't saying doping. But when you have the president of the United States say, don't shortchange us, we're depending on you. That's also saying do what it takes to win, particularly in the context Mm -hmm. of the Cold War where we were making a lot of, I think, larger ethical compromises. If you look at the Iran-Contra scandal, uh, what we were doing in Central America, maybe doping could be seen as uh, a compromise that we had to make in order to defeat this much larger evil called communism. So sort of if you suspend our automatic sense of outrage at doping today and when you look at the history of doping you see how the sense of outrage today sort of built into a much larger uh, machine that it is today than it ever ever was and it's a gradual process yeah, it's um, and this tension between the need to police these things, but to also to avoid scandal, it c- continues to this day. And and I was actually fascinated too by sort of the origins of the World Anti Doping Agency, known as WADA, which now oversees all international um, doping in sports. And it was created um, actually in an attempt by the IOC at the time in the in the nineties to create a, a, a the veneer of of a of an agency that was um, overseeing the sport, but which would would really be controlled by the I O C. But that's not how things turned out. Yeah, it's it's a super fascinating story. So, and it really begins with the Festina scandal at the nineteen ninety eight Tour de France. And what happened there is you had uh, the French government came in with a heavy hand during the Tour de France because a, a Belgian. Uh, uh, team staff member had been caught at the Belgian-French border with a car full of drugs. And he was one of the, the team members for one of the teams at Tour de France. So that sort of cracked open the scandal. Riders were being arrested, thrown in jail. Managers were being arrested. This made the IOC's blood run cold. Why? Because the IOC did not want federal police officials showing up in the Olympics and arresting athletes. It's their worst nightmare. It's the worst nightmare for the sponsors who are paying big money to have the halo effect of the Olympics as a purveyor of of, uh, goodliness and morality and ethics. And police arresting athletes was a clash with all, all of that. So in 1998, the IOC sponsored or or created an anti-doping conference, and their intention was to create an anti-doping agency that would sit under the umbrella of the IOC. The problem was that before this conference had happened, a scandal broke where where it was exposed that the IOC members had received bribes in order to bring the Winter Olympics to Salt Lake City in 2002. So the IOC was already muddied there. And so this conference essentially went awry because the um, uh, international governing figures and also medical community had so little respect for the IOC that uh, the IOC's plan of creating an IOC-managed uh, uh, anti-doping agency went awry, and a truly independent World Anti-Doping Agency was born out of out of this uh, conference. And I think one one of the most interesting moments in that conference is when um, Barry McCaffrey, who was Bill Clinton's uh, anti-drug czar for the United States, got up in the podium and started lecturing the IOC and European sporting bodies about getting their drug house in order Uh, and it was quickly pointed out that in 1998 you could buy uh, anabolic steroids over the counter in supplements and that's in fact what Mark McGuire was using androstendione (laughs) in order to swat home runs and you could go into GNC or Walmart and buy it because it had been it was legal in America so they quickly pointed out the hypocrisy of an American lecturing Europeans on getting their drug house in order. So, but WADA was born, and it was truly independent, and uh, no, they, they still struggle. The WADA's own research in two thir- 2013 showed that they're only catching 2% of drug cheats, and when you throw out the athletes who are busted for marijuana and um, asthma medicine, it's less than 1%. So they're fairly ineffective, and that's not meant as a criticism of, the, of WADA. They, they themselves admit that, look, you can't stop doping by simply plucking out athletes uh, because this is a social, nationalistic, and economic problem. It's a collective enterprise. It's not just Lance Armstrong or Ben Johnson or Floyd Landis. You can pluck those guys out all day, but the structural forces persist and it's very difficult to address those. And, you know, I think one of the things that's surprising to, um, you know, fans of these sports and spectators and Americans alike is that every time one of these guys takes a fall, whether it's Tyler Hamilton or Lance Armstrong, um, because of this, because doping has become a moral issue, we, we sort of expect them to get on their knees and ask for forgiveness. But you don't see a lot of forgiveness among athletes who've been busted. Why is that? Well, I mean, this is, this is purely speculative. But you could argue that for Americans, um, by tearing down somebody like Lance Armstrong, it's a ritualistic sort of expulsion of our own guilt about our own total dependence and celebration of drugs, mm-hmm. but without having to look in the mirror and saying, and I am party to this drug use. Mm-hmm. So we can tear down Lance arms, and say he's a cheat. He's destroying the spirit of sport. Uh, but then we don't have to admit the fact that when you're sitting and watching the baseball game with your nine-year-old. Your nine-year-old is also being barraged with, drug, with messages telling you that when you have a pathology, a sickness, or you are even facing the, the normal indignities of aging, you need to turn to drugs and drugs can make you well, if not better than well again. So you know, perhaps it's a ritualistic experience tearing down athletes without having to tear down ourselves or admit our own complicity in our celebration of performance enhancing drugs. Well, and I think there's also something to the fact that, especially in cycling, um, you know, it's it's not a popular argument, but both Hamilton and Armstrong can make the case. Yeah, I was doping, but so was literally everybody else in the peloton. So, um, you know, my 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 performances, you know, should stand the test of time because of the uh, the era I was I was performing in. Yeah, and no, I mean. What Armstrong did, he was he was still the fact remains that drugs are illegal and he was breaking the rules. So the fact that Travis Tigart took him down, even though the US anti-doping in the United States is really, really late to the anti-doping game, seeing as we haven't even we didn't even create an anti-doping agency till till two thousand. Uh, the fact that Tigart did pull was able to get his seven Twitter de France wins, taken away, says that, well, anti-doping agencies can be uh, truly independent. But you know what he was doing and what Landis was doing was really practicing one of the oldest traditions in cycling, which is turning to pharmaceuticals to do your job. But beginning in the 60s, you really had the growth of these new anti-doping missionaries. And sort of every trauma that we see with an athlete getting stuck do- stuck with doping, I think as fans, it's important to reconceptualize it. Drugs are not a new cancer, not something that is corrupting an essence of sport. They're an old tradition, and new anti-doping missionaries are trying to stop an old tradition. And so not unlike missionaries showing up in Hawaii um, and all of a sudden telling telling the Hawaiian islanders that, uh, surfing is now a sin, and it's distancing you from this new God, that is not something that went down easily, and a lot of human rights were violated, and a lot of people died. But eventually it worked, and now Hawaiians are going to church. Likewise, in, in South America, you know the, the Portuguese and Spanish missionaries, it took hundreds of years, and lots of terrible human rights violations, uh, but their cultural ways have now ended, and now... South Americans, Portuguese, Spanish-speaking countries worship the Pope. So these missionary effect endeavors can work, but it's not a clean break, and it's going to take time. Hmm. So do you think drugs will ever be eradicated from sports, or at least um, you know to to tamp down that percentage of twenty to fifty percent to something like five percent? No, and I I actually think that in thirty years we're going to look back at the doping. Scandals that we have today, and look at them as saying we had no idea how quaint they were. Because I think, as genetic engineering, which is sort of the future of addressing uh, inherited pathologies and sicknesses like, like cancer or muscle wasting diseases or, or all sorts of dip- different pathologies, the minute that you can look at how you can modify the genetic structure of a human in order to solve a problem, some deficiency. Somebody's going to very quickly figure out, wow, if you can use this uh, genetic modification to stop a muscle-wasting disease so that, so that a person's muscles develop normally, then maybe we can use the same technology to make their muscles better than normal. And then also you look at uh, genetic engineering, genetic modification, where you can actually modify an embryo. And we're rapidly getting to the point where this can happen is you can go in and and look at the the DNA structure of a Lance Armstrong or a Serena Williams or a Michael Phelps and say, okay, these are the genetic characteristics of this athlete. Let's recreate this athlete, or let's take thousands of embryos and identify the embryo that most mimics the DNA structure of one of these great athletes. That athlete is born goes out and competes, so they're a genetically doped athlete, but they had no agency over the fact that they are that person. So how does our current law and order system, where we address doping through greater surveillance, uh, greater punishments, and and greater stigmatization of athletes, well, how does it apply to an athlete that has no control over the fact that they've been modified and that they are essentially a doped athlete? So I think once we get to that stage, it's, it's, it's going to be astonishing. I don't, I don't know how we're going to manage it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot to look forward to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And uh, it's been great. And enjoy the Olympics.
0: That's Mark Johnson talking to Chris Geis. The Outside Interview is produced by me, Peter Fickwright, and edited this week, like most weeks, by Robbie Carver. We just got word that our brand new social media editor, Ash Dumford, is feeling better after a pretty nasty climbing accident. You can tweet kind words to her at Outside Magazine. We're also on Facebook, and our email is podcast at outsidemag.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back in two weeks.